Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU's Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you. Today, we're joined by Jason Wolf, Chief Strategy and Information Officer at Vive. Jason grew up watching his entrepreneur father start and grow one of Israel's major real estate companies. In 2018, and after 25 years in various high-tech entrepreneur and executive roles in Silicon Valley, he joined the team at Vive as Chief Strategy and Information Officer. In this role, he's tasked with the responsibility to set the strategy with the underlying information system and the intent to deliver exceptional living experiences for people. For more information, feel free to visit vive.com. That's V-E-E. V.com. Hello, Jason. We're honored and thrilled to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Thank you, Jason. Jason, we'd like to start our show with early inspirations, if you will. If you can share with us, you know, as much as you can recall, what you felt as a child and how it relates to what it is you're even doing today. That, that's a brilliant question. One well, I, I love I love to, to talk about my childhood because... I think it's been a long time, I'm 50 plus now, so it's been a long time in the making to get to this point. I grew up in both South Africa and Israel, as you can tell from my accent. Excellent. I was detached from my roots in South Africa, nice comfortable upbringing in South African apartheid and taken by my overly Zionistic father to Israel at the age of six. Okay. And then I grew up the rest of my childhood in Israel. And at the age of 26, I decided to take a year sabbatical and landed up for 25 years in Silicon Valley. Wow. So that's a synopsis of my my life. But going back to my childhood, I think the most impactful experience I had that brought me where I am today is the fact that my dad came from, as I said, South Africa, where he had shoe stores. He was a retail salesperson at shoe stores. Shoe stores, okay. Left everything behind because he believed in the Jewish state and what it means for the Jewish people, and he moved to Israel. Moving to Israel, of course, he couldn't take anything at the time out of South Africa. He had to start a new career. And he thought, 
you know, what am I going to do here in this emerging country? There's going to be a lot of people that need to come here and need to buy and build and live in homes. Sure. So he and two friends of his from South Africa started a company by the name of Anglo-Saxon. And of course, the target market was people from abroad that wanted to come to Israel. And they started this real estate company. And much like you see here in Tero or Remax or those type of real estate brokerages, mm -hmm. he started the first really franchise-based real estate company in Israel. Oh, my goodness. Was it from nothing? I mean, I mean he, sta he started from an idea that they have to buy land and be able to bring Jews from around the world that are in countries that they prefer to leave. And he started it really from an idea. So it was obviously there was inspiration, but the idea was just formulated in his own mind. Yeah, absolutely. There wasn't there wasn't any uh, uh, references or anything. If, he came from shoes, selling shoes to sh selling houses. <laughs> well, I guess the sh the shoe houses are foot. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> so, so there's a, there's a house relation there. Now, how did that affect you as a as a child to see that and inspire you? So I was always intrigued by new things and technology, and I think it was probably 1981 or 1982 and you know for my bar mitzvah I got one of the first PCs it was one of these you know those FX81s of oh, yes, I'm yeah. a little older than you so you probably don't remember this one but this is predating Commodore and Apple and all these guys it was a little one that you connected the TV you got a little tape recorder and I learned basic and when I went into his re real estate office I saw all these roller decks type cards yes. that had two bedrooms, maybe at 50, 60 properties, three bedrooms, four bedrooms. And when a customer comes in, you basically take them through the cards. You say, okay, I'm a couple with one kid. Let me see all your three bedrooms. And the real estate agent would take out the cards and okay. show them all the inventory and then go out. And to me, I said, wow, that would be a great thing if I could create a little program that types in, all he has to do is type in what, two, three, four bedrooms and it would just show him a list of all the cars. And that was the first time I touched a computer and built some kind of program. It was really fun and my dad loved it. He was the first one in, in the 80s to actually have a, one of those kind of green screens that he could type in and mm -hmm. see things. And I think that was an inspiration for the rest of my life, regardless of real estate, because I did 25 years in tech and software since the 90s here in the Valley. Yeah, how has the tech and software impacted even what you do at uh, Vive? So at Vive, the interesting thing is I've known the founder of Vive, Amit Haller, mm -hmm. who's also a ex-Israeli who's lived here probably almost as long as I have for a long time since our military days. And we've always been friends, but we never really worked together. He's a successful serial entrepreneur. He built and sold one company. He built and took public another company. And during the recession, during the real estate crisis in the 2008 period, he decided that it's time to move into real estate from technology. And that's how he started Vive, which formerly was known as Dragonfly. And he started the company on the notion that we can help take these properties at the time, a lot of distressed properties from Fresno, Sacramento, East Palo Alto here, renovate them and either lease them or sell them back to people 
That way he would both from a business perspective as well as a humane perspective bring value to the world. Yes. We've had the uh, honor and privilege of, of having uh, Amit on our show, The Modern Architect, as well. And what I found is I know you we've heard the common phrase, which is like a win-win. You've, you've probably heard that. But I've, I've taken it a little further, and maybe it's too far. But I call it the triple crown winner. What it is is it's a win-win-win. And what it means is, obviously, the client, guest, or customer wins. Then you who provide the service wins. And then the entities that kind of combine all of you wins. So that's why I call it triple crown winner. And that's what I, you know, why I obviously wanted to, to reach out to Amit and you, because I liked that you guys have what I've called triple crown winner. And that's actually kind of the secret of the show. That's what we're looking for for guests is who has that, you know, triple it, wins. It's, uh, <laughs> I'll try and up you on one because okay, it's go a for quadruple it. crown winner. Because oh, I love that. If you think about the community or the city that we're in, okay, the major problem that the world and definitely the Bay Area face is a housing crisis. I'm not talking about global warming. There's a clear and direct crisis today in pretty much every major metro of housing where the average salary today cannot afford the average home, either rental Sorry. or the payment on mortgage. And that probably hasn't been this out of whack since the medieval days where you had these knights and princesses that lived and they owned the land and then people would would actually just work the land to survive but they didn't have any ownership we've gotten so far from what an equilibrium in economics would would handle that really kids my kids 21 19 when they go out into the work, workforce and get a good job they still can't afford the average home true so what that puts on society, it puts a, a tremendous pressure on the Valley, on, on the Bay Area, on California, on any major metro. So unless we can solve for the cost of what it costs to build a home today, because that's the essence of then afterwards how mm -hmm. you resell it, and solve for the permitting and all the processes that allow you to put these units in, we can't solve the, the, without those two things. So when I talk about the quadruple crown, Love it. the community and the cities, if we can innovate in real estate, which we haven't done for thousands of years, if we can innovate and create a product out of something that traditionally was a old-fashioned project, we suddenly now can, both the community and the developer and the owner as well as, of course, if there's investors or anybody else involved, there's a lot of value to be unlocked because of the price of real estate today. Very interesting. Now, how did you come up with the name Vive? That's a good question. We just uh, rebranded about six months ago. Okay. The initial 11, 12 years of Vive as a real estate company, less focused on tech was much more in an environment that you're B2B. You're, you're working with investors, you're finding land. Ultimately, yes, you're going to be leasing or selling property, but it's not a major name that needs to be global that everybody needs to remember. Mm. When we shifted, and I think it's been a process of about the last three, four years, when we shifted to realize that our mission is to provide exceptional living everywhere, to everyone, we knew we needed to come up with a brand that's going to be recognizable, it's going to be repeatable, and that you can reach all types of people that you want to provide that exceptional living to. So we went through a process with a very good 
strong company called New Deal Design that does industrial design. They've done some work with like the Fitbit. They've done the Postmates robot, if you've seen this thing run around. So we did some ideation and we came up with a number of concepts, a number of options. And Vive seemed like, you know, it doesn't mean the same thing in French, like Vivre. But it sounds like life. It sounds so crisp. It sounds like this is just a good thing. And we all kind of fell in love with that thing. Of course, like any good Silicon Valley company needs to do, we had to check, of course, that it's available and that we could buy it at a reasonable price. And suddenly all the stars aligned the branding came together the coloring the green the 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 kind of imperfect we've got those oblique kind of shapes that are not perfectly yeah. round but they're not too rigid so that so was by it, design that was all oh, okay. by thought and design to create kind of that alignment between the brand the logo, the name towards our vision of exceptional living. Yeah. You know, I notice not every uh, folk, all the folks that we talk with have this, and although it may be a good company, but it sounds like you guys really care. Can you kind of touch on that and how it's related to your culture? Absolutely. The three founders of the company that started back in the Great Recession, as I said, Amit Haller, the second one is Ami Avrahami, who's in Israel. So it's this partnership between Amit and Ami, who actually work together in one of the high-tech companies that they had. And the third founder is a lady by the name of Daphna Kiva. And if you look at a combination, one of the reasons I joined and some of the other executives in the last couple of years have joined, is you have the perfect match between kind of left brain, right brain, <laughs> practical you know, visionary. I've been in a lot of management teams, but I've I've never seen such a diverse yet cohesive team of people like the seven executives that run Vive today. And it's it's both it, it gives you both the challenge of different people, but it's also the fun of being able to work together and we worked on our values to set them very early on as a company. We didn't we didn't wait with that till we grow up we realized that in order to really be where you want to be, you've got to start with the DNA day one. And that's what I love about the work at Viva. And as you say, we really care about the result. We all have families. We all believe, and that's our first value is family. Even in a cutthroat, economical, commercial type world, it's important to, to really attach to why we started as a, as a human race, why we started to create products and services and work with people is at the end of the day, we're people, but we're surrounded by family, friends, community. And that's what's so important about keeping alignment between all of us towards that kind of vision. That's terrific. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Jason Wolf, Chief Strategy and Information Officer at Vive. For more information, feel free to visit vive.com. That's V-E-E-V dot com. Jason, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk about, again, the values, because I, I can see it. Our audience obviously can't see you, but you're moving in. in <laughs> we'll in make it cha- very visual. Yeah, yeah. you're really moving, in, and I can see your, your big smile. You know, it is important to you, it sounds like, the values. Is it something you've arrived at as a person or all your partners have arrived at as people before they even entered business to be part of, to exhibit that and express that as a company culture? I think everybody comes with their own kind of or derives their values over time. 
the way we came up with our five values, it's kind of like how life goes. You got to compromise and you got to align and you got to set priorities. So maybe something's very important for me, but not for my other six executives. Then we might put that aside, leave that as a personal value. But the five that we came up with were so strong for all of us that we now put that from day one in our interview process, in selecting people, in our day-to-day recognition of people. So we recognize those values. And magically, because this is just a fairly recent change, we see the values starting and people start to talk about them and they start to live them and we're seeing it in the behaviors. So just maybe going through them briefly, Mm -hmm. we spoke about family. It's really important for us to live and enjoy the work together as a family towards that vision. It's important for us for people to take ownership. So a lot of times in companies, as you grow, people say, okay, I'm going to do my job so well. Everybody will look at it and say, oh, that's a great job he's doing. But it's about ownership end to end, being able to take a topic. And if you see something that might not be 100%, taking it all the way, not saying, okay, that's not in my ball. Let someone else carry that. It's about integrity, which is kind of that transparent, that that saying what you're going to do and doing what you're going to say, what you, what you just said. Integrity is really important for us. It's exceptionalism. You won't reach exceptional living if you don't have exceptionalism in every small detail of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. So we're looking at something like the auxiliary dwelling units that we're building right now. And we're actually working with a shout-out to Stanford D School. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple of uh, Stanford D School students that we're working with. But you're working to find and talk to customers and see what they really care about, not the traditional construction that you say, okay, here's my cost, here's how much I can sell this for, and then go find a market. We're really looking at every detail. So that that exceptionalism is really important. Innovation, which goes back to what we spoke about in terms of really the construction industry, the real estate industry, is just going through the beginning of a renaissance of technology infused. You know, retail doesn't look the same, transportation doesn't look the same, hospitality doesn't look... I don't even have to mention the names. As I go through these industries, everybody has the flashlights going on on who the companies are that have changed it in the last 25 years. But when you think about real estate, you scratch your head. And I'm talking mainly residential real estate. We've had some real estate uh, innovation, but it hasn't been disruptive innovation. It hasn't taken a house like we want to take and take it to half the cost, to a quarter of the time to deploy it and a better design, not to stay and say, you know what, I'll compromise. I'll compromise and I'll live in a container just so I can reduce the cost and the time. No, we believe that in the future you're going to have so... It has to be innovative, has to be exceptional, integrity, ownership, and family. Those are our five values. That's terrific. Can you share with us the ADU or accessory dwelling units? Who are, there are be, I believe California now has uh, approved them, right? Or it has been approved. Yes. Okay. Uh, ADUs are, again, the funny thing is a three-letter ac- acronym would probably not be known by anybody in the consumer area. But recently speaking to a Mercury News reporter, they said the number one term when they look at their analytics of what what gets picked up by users, ADU, those three letters that that anybody outside California doesn't know what it means, 
has become something that everybody understands. And the reason is, again, auxiliary dwelling unit is only a government can come up with such a convoluted <laughs> name to, to call something to get it hot and, and yeah. exciting. But the fact is, it is to, in my opinion, and this is my personal opinion, not Vive, it's the quickest and probably the only way to make significant progress against the housing crisis. The housing crisis today, about 7 million units are missing in the US since the Great Recession. How many? 7 million. And that's just a very simple calculation. It's not amorphic. It's a real number because you look at household creation versus building units built. Mm -hmm. And the gap is 7 million units in the last 11 years or 12 years. In California alone, that's 3.4 million of that seven. And in you think about half of the housing crisis is in California, and we understand now why the price appreciation the last five, six years has been such. So without taking a solution that's radical, that's gonna change the length of time that it takes to permit and entitle and build multifamily units, you're not gonna catch up that gap. We're now in a in one of the most economic expansive eras and we're not building more than we did before the crisis. So we're basically, every year, we're managing to catch up with now at, at this expansion with household creation. But the gap that was created of those 3.4 million in California, we're not denting it. So the only way, and this is kudos, you know, sometimes government has really, really big impact. The government in 2017 passed the first ADU law. And it said basically something simple. We're going to try and help overcome some of the local objections by doing a standard for all California for these auxiliary, these granny units, these backyard units. And guess what? Most jurisdictions had that nimbyism effect. Not in my backyard. We need to solve the problem, but let some other city do it. Mm. One city that embraced it was Los Angeles. And if you look at the years before 2017, 2016, 15, for about 20 years before that, you'll see about 50 to 150 permits per year for an ADU. 2017, as the law came out, there were 1,000 units. And 2018, there were 4,000 units permitted. It was 20% of all new building in Los Angeles. So in 2018, you kind of started to see, okay, this is something that, if taken seriously by the local municipalities, would be an amazing opportunity. Sure. Probably one of the biggest economic opportunities in, that government has unleashed in history. Now, what happened in 2018-19 is, and kudos to Governor Newsom, realized that there's still some gaps that the local governments are finding ways to stop the creation of these ADUs. So what they did, and effective January 1st, they set a few things that are, the first thing, the most important thing they set in place with, with uh, adoption, I think it's AB 68 and a couple of other uh, statewide code. They said every jurisdiction has up to 60 days to either reject or provide comments or, or approve a plan for an ADU, specific to ADUs. They made it mandatory to accept both an ADU in your backyard as well as a junior ADU as a garage conversion or some kind of in. So effectively, as of January, 
every one of the 8 million single-family homes in California can now have two more units. And this, to me, is like the biggest scoop of the century because most people just don't know this yet. Now, of course, with all your listeners, <laughs> yeah, thank the you. secret's out. <laughs> thank you. But it, yeah. it, is, it is an amazing opportunity both to solve the housing crisis as well as for a lot of innovation and a lot of people to come into the market because Viva alone definitely is not going to be able to build another million or two million units in the next couple of years. But the opportunity for Vive was so great to be able to come into a product that's fairly quick to turn around, to do it besides our multifamily projects, to do these ADUs and be able to quickly both help society solving the housing crisis, which is part of our mission, as well as, of course, for us on a product and a financial perspective, it's a great product to get going and, and use your technology on a mass scale. Oh, this is terrific. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Jason Wolf, Chief Strategy and Information Officer at Vive. For more information, you can visit vive.com. Again, vive.com. Jason, if you can touch again, I like this. Uh, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. It's living as a product, almost like SaaS. Is, uh, do I have it correctly? Is it? Well, yeah, it's taking okay. it's taking the product and enabling it to be much more of a consumable, but that you still feel some ownership into it. It very much fits the way millennials are looking at a lot of things, where they look at their transportation or they're looking at other things, where they want to they want the flexibility, but they also want the ownership. So being able to provide something that you can live in, that's modern, that's different. It's really important. If you think about the standard complexes that we see all around the Bay Area and rest of the country, you're coming in and in the Bay Area, it might be a $4,500 one bedroom, sure. one bath. You walk into the apartment and you've got carpets everywhere. Why? Because the developer's trying to cut costs. And you walk into the bathroom and you touch the bathtub and it's one of those plastic full units, very low quality. You stare up the ceiling and there's no lighting because you have to bring a, a Home Depot lamp and plug it into the plug because no one wants to, to run the cost of putting copper wire in the ceiling. So, and that's a $4,500 a month product. So the product quality has not evolved in tens of years at least. So being able to innovate on the product itself and bring a new product that's factory built with the quality and the testing and assembled much quicker on site with a higher degree of quality and digital technology integration, which we're used to in our phones, our cars and everything, is today we think that's dignified living. Today we don't have that dignified living. Oh, I've noticed in Vivo, especially uh, on your website, is what you're producing, in, at least in my opinion, is actually more attractive and aesthetically pleasing than much of what has been built, what was built in, say, the early 60s to mid-80s, mid-early 90s. Is that by design to say we really are, it's important for us to have a home that is, uh, that is efficient, effective, and pleasing? Absolutely, to the latter part. I'm not going to go back and compare. And, okay. And you know, I just love the differences in different architectures and, you know, I, you know, 
I, I, when I moved here, I looked, I wanted, I wanted to buy an Eichler and it okay. doesn't matter from what period it was. So I think there's value in all types of architecture because we are different people as mm -hmm. well. But I think the latter part of what you said is really true. We look, and, and that's where we didn't want to compromise in our industrialized, productized world of residential real estate. We wanted to keep that touch of, mm. of being able to, to create something that looks modern, much better, much nicer than what we feel can be done otherwise. But it's definitely, it's a modern look. It's highly, highly integrated with technology and it's something that we believe that most I'd say 20 somethings to everybody would love to live in yeah are you at liberty to share even the prospective costs or uh, what it may cost for a consumer so so let me take a you know market data and okay. I'll tell you kind of referential where we're standing. So if you look at market data today and, and I just spoke in an event with a couple of architects that are building tens of single family homes here just last week, the number that was published that everybody saw in the press, you can Google this, is about $420 a square foot to build in the Bay Area. Okay. And it was stated in these researches that that's become the highest in the world. <sighs> That's ridiculous, but the numbers I'm hearing, and this is probably more relevant, is over 500, 550. The numbers have keep climbing. And the reason, the main driver behind that is the fact that still 60, 70% of the cost of construction is labor. Mm -hmm. And labor is so tight and so expensive, specifically here, that those prices are becoming a reality. When we look at the way Viv is building in factory built homes as panels, so fully completed walls with the, with the right electrical and plumbing and everything embedded, the cladding, the coverings on both inside and outside, completely tested like you would an appliance and then connected in, in the field, it's significantly less than that today. And of course, with the cost curve, we're a young company. We've got our first factory in Union City. Hmm. It's doing well. It's, it's got a capacity of up to 800,000 square feet a year, but that's still a, a drop. That's 800 units, give or take. Okay. That's a drop in the bucket. Even at this early stage, relatively, our cost is much less than that number that I quoted of 420. Okay. And that's before the cost curve that technology and scale allow you to do. Because once you're doing factory built, you can reduce that cost significantly over the next few years. Mm. Super. Now, my experience is a number of uh, where I live, the city I live in, there's a number of, uh, it's a, quite of a senior area. And a number of the houses, the people are downsizing. So either they're selling their homes or maybe their children are moving from out of state and coming back because the house has been paid for. But there's actual land in their, say, their backyard or a side of their home that's available for, uh, at least I'm, I'm thinking right now. Is that is that true or am I incorrect? That, that is precisely what, okay. was, what the government was thinking about solving the housing crisis. They said there's, there's a lot of people that either they're getting older and their house rich but cash poor okay. because now they're on social security or things like that so they they would want either a tenant that they could both financially as well as from a companionship perspective rely on in the backyard 
or in most cases like you mentioned they would move into this beautiful brand new unit it's mm-hmm. a great opportunity as they retire and get more from a family a young family that would live in the bigger house so we're seeing endless like that i i just uh, it was interesting it's been a while since a customer cried in a meeting but i had this, this <laughs> the hope of joy this, yeah you okay. know it was a little bit joy a little frustration because we're getting a lot of requests for these adus because the new laws have come in and suddenly people have realized what an economic end to be able to move in so this this lady who i won't mention her name because i didn't ask her if i could <laughs> but she sold a 35 year business nail salon and got maybe $70,000 for it because it's a retail store and you don't get that much for those things sure. and now she's got a 9,000 square foot lot in San Jose with a 1500 square foot house a huge yard beautiful yard she's already got a tenant that's helping her pay some of the bills in mm. inside the home mm. and she called me and she said oh i googled this thing and uh, what are you guys doing and i've got all these contractors coming and telling me i should put one of these in my yard and they pushing me i said don't worry i will talk to you about this we will come we will take a look and if if it works out you will do this but i showed her the financials of it and then she said oh my god i can actually now retire oh. That is, you know, for me, it was... That's like, inspirational, yeah, to, in, to say the you least. You don't get that too yes. much from customers. So she started crying because yes. she didn't know how she's going to retire on the one tenant that's paying her $1,300. This thing in San Jose would probably be around $2,500 a month. Oh, wow. That's tremendous. And that's just one of the more and that's a, yeah. recent stories. You haven't had many. So how else are you promoting Viv, you know, other than the obviously internet online, how about offline? Are there do you reach out to new homeowner, prospective new first-time buyers? I'm curious how how would you That's a great get question. That It's a great question because the online channel is really good because people are looking for them like we we spoke about the Mercury News and that people are really interested. But the offline, think about real estate brokers. That's a really important alliance or partner in this. Everybody that's selling or buying a home has value of putting an ADU there because day one mm. let's say an ADU costs $200,000 day one your property is appreciated by more than 200,000 in the bay area so it's the ultimate investment and then if you look at the ongoing cash flow besides that 200,000 the minimum you're going to get rent let's say $2,000 a month is 24,000 a year So you look at the returns, the gross returns on a $200,000 to get $24,000 versus the standard house that might cost here a million to a million five, where you, the return there, the gross return there is going to be 5% mm-hmm. if you're lucky. So the aggregation of both the main house that might max out at 5% return gross and the ADU that might max out at 15% gross actually increases both the value as well as the ongoing cash flow from the house. So it's real estate brokers now are realizing that they can help their clients, buyers or sellers, improve their business transaction. So they get more when they sell, they get more when they buy. It's that's a really interesting channel. The other thing I've done personally and it's I don't promote Vive there is I've set up a meetup that's mm-hmm. called Bay Area ADU 
Mm, okay. And it's it's actually something that I, in my previous world, I was one of the early electric vehicle entrepreneurs. And I did it very effectively here in the Bay Area because it's a it's a village. You need the cities, you need the the local businesses, you need so many different players because it's infrastructure like electric vehicles. This is housing. You need so many different players to come together to ease the way for the end customer to be able to do it because it's complex and it's expensive. So I set up this Bay Area ADU meetup that we meet every month and we talk about What's the vision? How do we get to sustainable mass adoption of ADUs? Because there are challenges with these ADUs. If you put too many of them and similar challenges that we saw in the electric vehicle world where people were scared that the transformers on the electrical poles will blow or there was no way to charge. Or, and now we're probably 15, 12, 15 years after, mm-hmm. we see, wow, these things are great, these electrical vehicles. Same process needs to happen with these backyard units. People are scared that, you know, there'll be overcrowding, there'll be transportation issues, no parking. We're going to, the schools are going to be impacted, the parks, and everybody's got these fear elements of it. So it's important to bring the village together. So to get the local governments, to get different service and product people that are related to it. HVAC or, or it could be solar, it could, all these players stand to gain financially, but also from a community perspective. So we have to come together to make sure we're doing it right. And a community like this can come and then influence and bring in a mayor or bring in some of the people that are actually making and doing the decisions because this forum has clout, has impact. So that's kind of some of the things, the channel. So the meetup channel, the brokers channel, of course, conferences and conventions that are around architecture mm-hmm. or around construction and things like that are great channels for, for finding customers. And then it's word of mouth to me is going to be the strongest thing here because when I'll, I'll talk about I live part time here in an ADU in East Palo Alto. So the neighbors I meet, the people that come mm-hmm. out, everybody wants to do the same thing. <laughs> the church across the road, they own six houses and they say, oh, how do we do it? Because we're trying to help the poor. So everybody has a reason to do it, but there's unanimous need for extra units, extra housing. And this is the quickest and, and most cost-effective way to get more units. Yeah. Interesting. So interesting on so many levels. Uh, one I want to touch on is, I recall, uh, oh, I don't recall, yeah, I do, is uh, at some point there was a, you know, people built homes with a one car garage. Yeah. Okay. That was it. One car and not everyone had a car, but we're going to go ahead and build it with a one. Then it moved to a two. And if you really became affluent or really important to you, you've had a three-car garage. I'm looking at the ADU. I don't mean it in the simplistic way, but just as a reference to it changed uh, building. That your home now no longer came with a single-car garage. It comes with a two-car garage. So do you envision a day soon where an ADU is a, is a part of the home, where it's just like you'd have either a garden or a lawn, but actually has a greater more positive impact because it's not you know obviously the lawn looks pretty but you're watering you put chemicals on it to keep it alive and the bugs and everything else off it and there's no revenue generation or if you look back at the family like you said you're, you're in one part-time is 
wouldn't it be nice if you, uh, instead of having grandparents or the kids, especially here in the Bay Area, where they ha- they, they pretty much can't leave. afford to yeah, come back, they, have to, leave, they yeah. have to go to either another state or another part of the state that they truly don't want to be in, but it's a place to start a family, where you can actually have the grandparents in the home that they lived in and then kind of uh, just adjust and still live and have that sense of community and not have that sense of distance and disconnect that is common now, even though with social media. Am I projecting too much, Jason? No, no, I wouldn't. I okay. want to steal that vision of yours. Okay. Tom. I want that vision of every every single family home should have an ADU in the backyard for different reasons, but everyone should like the two car garage. Hopefully, those two car garages become the junior ADUs for everybody. So we have one okay. in the backyard, yeah. and we have a junior ADU, because frankly, in California, we either don't need covered parking. Or we should be moving to much more sustainable transportation means. So I think the vision that you're drawing is perfect. I'd love to see that. That And by the way, that Meetup ADU, the first meeting when we defined what is our mission, okay. we said in 2025, if we're successful, what will the headline in Mercury News, hopefully Mercury News will be around, but... What will be the headline in Mercury News in 2025 if this group is successful at mass adoption of ADUs? And the title that the group came up with was Yimbi's Win. (laughs) Yes, in my backyard, win. Over half the single-family homes in the Bay Area now have an ADU in the backyard. That was the headline we came up with in 2025. Yeah, it's a little ambitious in 2025. It's like your vision. It's doable. There's state legislation. There's local jurisdictions. Uh, shout out to Mayor Licardo in San Jose. In December was just before the laws came out. They got the city council together before the holiday, and they approved not only all the state laws, they went a step further, and they allowed things like ADUs that are up to 1,600 square feet, which is almost mm-hmm. the size of a house. They reduced a lot of the restrictions that even the state didn't ask to reduce. And they've got something called ADUs Tuesdays. So you can come in on Tuesday afternoon and over the counter get your approval for an ADU. Is that right? <laughs> so shout out to San Jose. 180 to 200,000 lots now are available to build additional ADUs to solve those types of problems. So yeah. hopefully they'll be the first to get to that vision. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm seeing it as a very people-centric. Sure, there's a, a revenue component to it, but a people-centric, a greater community, because obviously if you're going to choose who's you'd like to have in your ADU, there's going to be some not just obviously credit references and everything else, but there's a there has to be a connection between the neighborhood. Absolutely. So, so actually what it sounds like what once... Now, this is really reaching. I know it is. But it sounds like what is now a housing crisis can be actually a housing abundance. And opportu- I, I, I love that. I didn't think about it that way. But it's not only abundance. It's an opportunity to go back to something that's really natural in, our, in humans as tribes. It's a connection, a human community. We split up and our kids go off to college and that. But in most society, in most of history... We have this multi-generational living together and it has a really important, and it's been proven in a number of researches about longevity and quality of life and that, but it has a tremendous value. This is our ability to get back to 
that type of life, we gave up on that life not because it's not the right thing to do or what we didn't feel right about it. Economically, mm-hmm. opportunity-wise, people might have grown up in the suburbs and then moved, the kids moved to the cities and that. Today, we don't have to make those compromises. We can live as multi-generational. We can, one, one of my prospective customers has a special needs kid who's 20-something. And I think he mentioned they get like $800 or $900 a month in assistance. But you can't live anywhere besides in your parents' house with that. And you can't get any kind of independence. Mm. But if now in their backyard they have an ADU, suddenly that unlocks an ability for semi-independence, dignity, and that special needs kid now lives close by. Mm-hmm. Have you ever quantified, just for either the sake of interest or maybe even the sake of uh, for a marketplace, the damage caused by not having a community or a connection? Personally, definitely haven't. Okay. Uh, that might be my, my next... Uh, it's a really interesting... Uh, be interesting to know if anybody has quantified that. You know, I can tell you anecdotally because I am... And the reason I'm living in a ADU right now when I come to the Valley is I spent 25 years here and I actually moved back to Israel after 25 years with my three, two older kids and one, you know, middle school kid. I moved back to Israel a year and a half ago to get closer to my parents, my wife's parents. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if I'm 50s and uh, my parents are 80s, it's the last opportunity to really live together closely with what I got used to as a tribe. And, and some cultures sure. are most cultures. What I, the only, I love this country tremendously. And the thing I always, always, since I moved here in, in the 90s, it always was baffling to me how once you turn 18, for the majority, they're gone. They yes. come back on Christmas or Thanksgiving. And that's something I could never get used to. I could never get used <sighs> to that. And the detachment of these types of families, because I didn't grow up like that. And, you know, it's definitely Israel's not a third world country. It's not that way. Not in South Africa, not in Israel, not in places that I've lived like, like Europe and that. Yeah. Most of the world, from my understanding, does not subscribe to that way of that mindset and i don't know how to quantify that but i'm sure it's a very interesting psychological impact on people yeah i would say it's probably more negative than not i'm just taking just taking my own guess and um, you said it i'm getting into that hot water it's just my it's just my opinion (laughs) that that i think that there's a a great disconnect when you do have we will use that as a reference when you're 18 and when you go your way and we'll stay here and while you figure the world out you know, come back on the holidays. As you said, I think there's a great disconnect and that's a, there's a tremendous loss emotionally, obviously physically, but even mentally and how to navigate the world and some of the challenges that the world has by not having that connection. That's my opinion. I, I will not argue with you on the air. <laughs> so if we, if we go back to, um, you're welcome to, of course, is, is the ADU Tuesday how did that start? Do you have any idea how that became? Because that, that sounds like it's actually a, uh, an official... Well, uh, uh, you should interview Mayor Licardo okay. because I think he's one of the uh, the more progressive understanding, you know, with all the other problems that a major city like San Jose might have. He realized that if he can't solve the housing crisis, and I think he, when he came in, he mentioned, you know, he needs to build 25,000 units in the next few years, you know, but he, he realized that once this law is there, 
that there's going to be so much processes and standard ways of how cities permit building that would slow down the potential of this this great opportunity. Mm. So they've even got, I think it's Build Your Backyard. I can't remember the URL exactly, but they've got a dedicated website that San Jose put together to educate people with checklists and everything they need to do to get these ADUs into their backyards. And then they took it a step for, further with this, with his staff. They figured out, okay, we need that front desk where people come in with plans, usually go through a planning permit and then a building permit and fire and all this and they said we need kind of a concierge service mm. and they put their best people in, in the front office there and they said okay we've and they did open hall and publicized this and they said we've got ADU Tuesday. Now you Google ADU Tuesday, it's it's become probably anywhere in the country. You'll find San Jose. So it was a brilliant move by them. And uh, they're just continuing to innovate and continuing to look at how the bottom line is, how you get these ADUs installed. Yeah. How have you been able to reduce the fear or the concern or just the, even the ignorance of people of ADUs, their value and how positive they can be? Being here today is one of those oh, ways. <laughs> We're honored. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for having me, Tom. Yes. But it, it's a journey. And I think going back to my days 15, or no, it's not 15, but 13 years ago in the electric vehicle world, I remember even testifying uh, in Washington uh, alongside an unnamed uh, president <laughs> of Volkswagen uh, US. Mm. And we were asked the question, how quickly do we think this transition to electric transportation would take. Yeah, I was a little over-optimistic, like I could be, but the president of Volkswagen said, no, it won't happen. You know, we've got very effective, cheap diesel, great technology. And where we are today is companies on wholesale are saying, we're going full electric. I think it takes time. These things don't happen overnight and it doesn't happen through coercion. It happens through kind of these kind of discussions and things and people realizing where it really takes off, like it did with electric vehicles. And, you know, you see okay. the example with Tesla becoming yes. the largest car company in the history of the U.S. just in the last few days and, you know, number two in the whole world is you see this happen when people have them next to you, when it's like you said, touches people. When you have it in your backyard or your grandmother's now living there and happy and that, then suddenly it's going to, it's going to take off. And my prediction mm -hmm. is that, you know, you'll see a couple of years where it, it starts to take off and then we're going to get really the floodgates will open and people will start adopting them in mass because there's no downside to this. And that's, again, as you develop it sustainably, as you look at the city planning and that, there are things that can go wrong. There's going to be a lot of people that try to take advantage of this that are not looking at the mm, best interests okay. of people. I'm starting to hear stories like that lady I spoke about. She got a lot of offers that... I'm not sure they would be the valid ones where someone comes in and says, oh, I'll do it for you for half that price and end up, you know, tying you down for a year or a year plus in all kinds of long process and, and very expensive deployment. Yeah. So there's going to obviously you, you foresee if you don't haven't already for, have seen some players that aren't 
uh, do, aren't sharing the value. Well, it's, the na- it's natural in any economic opportunity mm-hmm. this size. You know, you do the math of eight million single-family homes, oh, yeah. and you say, okay, I'm going to add two hundred thousand dollars to each one of these eight million homes. The math is staggering. The opportunity is staggering. So wherever there's such opportunity. There's always risk and there's always people that are going to take advantage of it. Yeah. I know, Jason, you talked about uh, what your vision was being optimistic. Do you, but do you see a year, if you tried to quantify a year of a tipping point? I think that 2023, 24, uh, you know, if we want to get that vision of 2025, half the Bay Area yeah. okay. uh, single families have. So I think we're still a couple of years away from that tipping point. But take the example we used before about Los Angeles going from 100 to 1,000 to 4,000. I don't have the numbers for 2019. But when you're talking about a city having thousands of units permitted, doesn't mean they were all deployed, but permitted in a given year, when you extrapolate that across all cities in California and later on elsewhere, that's a major change. Absolutely. Jason, is there anything else that we may not have touched on in uh, on your show today that you'd like to share with uh, with your audience? I think the key thing in, in, in this type of audience where people care about architecture and things, it's really important to understand that there's going to be different types and different structural designs that come into this market. We are a very modern, advanced, high-tech solution. There will be others, and there is a place for everything if we really want to achieve that vision of exceptional living for all. But it's important that Vive brings its part and will continue to be consistent designing and building modern they live in in a different way. And that's what I think is really important to take away from everything we've spoken about. Excellent. Bringing heaven to earth. <laughs> Jason, it's been an honor. literal earth. Yes. In the ground. Jason, it's been an honor and pleasure. Thank you very much for being on the on Thanks, show. Tom. Thanks. Thank you. Great. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Jason Wolf, Chief Strategy and Information Officer at Vive. Jason grew up watching his entrepreneurial father start and grow one of Israel's major real estate companies. In 2018, and after 25 years in various high-tech entrepreneur and executive roles in the Valley, he joined the team at Vive as Chief Strategy and Information Officer. In this role, he's tasked with the responsibility, big one too, to set the strategy with the underlying information with the intent to deliver exceptional living to people. For more information, feel free to visit vive.com. Again, vive.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. I'm Tom Dior. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. The recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Assistant Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hyagi. And the executive producer and the host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals 
Use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. Thank you.